Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. How's it going? It's going. It's been a, it's been a busy couple of weeks. It has. Stuff and seasons and stuff. Yeah, news. We're like picking back up again. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, it's getting to be, you know, that time of year. We're getting out of the summer doldrums. And it seems like we really cut right to the winter doldrums. (laughs) Yeah. It's very cold. Yes. We didn't really, we had like three Augusts in a row and now it's mid-December. But, you know, there's no, nothing happened to our climate or anything. Nope. It's all fine. Everything is fine. It's getting better, I hear. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what kind of things have you been enjoying um, lately? Well, the first thing I want to talk about is Daredevil season three, which I believe you watched as well. I did on uh, the, on the net Netflix. Yeah, on the Netflix. Although for how long, who knows? Uh, I really liked this season of television. Yeah, I I thought it was. Um, I also thought it was really good. They seem like they have gotten better at smoothing out the pace of these thirteen episode seasons. I still think this one maybe could have been 10, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel feel nearly as bloated and aimless as Daredevil season two or Defenders. It, you know, felt much more like a real season of TV. Yeah, there was just a, a pretty driving intensity to, to most of it that I think has been lacking in some of the other shows. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know uh, if they'll continue it on with it, but... I think that the fan reaction was pretty pretty positive and critical reaction was pretty positive overall. Um, I think that, you know, they, they really capitalized on the actors and performances they have because their casting has been pretty awesome. And yeah, like Kingpin is. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. The show is nothing without him. Oh, I would agree with that. I mean, I think Charlie Cox does a really good job as Matt Murdock, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, given the whole playing a blind man and everything. Uh, the other characters I could leave or take. I mean, Karen's fine, but um, Foggy seems like a waste of time and space. Yeah, he feels like he's in a different TV show, doesn't he? He really does. It's not that I dislike him or the actor or anything. It's just like, I don't know. I just feel like, I just don't feel like they know what to do with him. Yeah, I think that's a good point. He is kind of, because for a while he was Matt's conscience, conscience but... It seems like every character in the show who isn't Kingpin is Matt's Matt's conscience now. So, yeah, we don't really know what to do with him. Well, between him and Karen, I think, is is, is the problem, is that in terms of characters who can drive the plot forward and who have a role to play in Matt Murdock's life, there's a lot of overlap between Foggy and Karen. And I don't really and I think Karen is just more well-developed. You don't need both of these characters. Yeah, especially if they're going to go, which I think they should go with Karen is just a good friend. I mean, there's romantic tension there for sure, but in the past. But I feel like, you know, not every female character, main character needs to be a love interest in every show. Yeah. And I feel like that's a good place for them to go. Like, though they had their thing, but it's done now and whatever. But, but yeah, but she, if she's in the friend role, conscience role, and so is Foggy, then yeah, it's a, it's a duplication that I don't really care for so uh but what what do you think of bullseye um i kind of kept waiting for him to be bullseye and i didn't really get it yeah i Uh, think i think what we i think what we needed was that last sequence the three-way fight at the end the climax of the mm -hmm. thing uh which don't don't get me wrong i like the fact that it was sort of a three-way fight that was a good 
mix up and a, a good change of pace. I like that sort of thing. Um, as opposed to just like, I fight you, you punch me kind of thing. But I just feel like he, we needed a little more of like a, a done up action scene with bull, at least one more like really good bullseye V daredevil action scene to really make you feel like bullseye. I mean, the, the scene in the, uh, the newspaper was pretty cool, but I wanted like another one of those. And I think I would have been fine then. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I think the a lot of the action scenes worked pretty well. There were some cool things of him, you know, you know, th- you know, throwing stuff in unexpected ways. And I think they, they kind of made a meal out of his powers. Which you have to, in my opinion. Yes. Like, otherwise, it's just lame. Like, you can't, you almost have to keep him like he is in the comics and other things because just like, otherwise, he's just like, well, what is he then? <laughs> and, but there's a lingering question that maybe the show answered and I whizzed past it because I kind of marathoned this and you know how it goes where all of a sudden you're like, did I really, did I see that episode? Um, but the lingering question of why doesn't he just use a gun? I know <laughs> that there are times when he's like pretending to be daredevil, but the cover's going to get blown once it's like there are people here who have been murdered with pencils. That's not something daredevil does. Something's wrong here. So, and I feel like in a lot of the comics portrayals, he gets a, um, kind of sadistic, kind of um, narcissistic glee out of killing people with unconventional tools. So, but this characterization of Bullseye the man, I think, went too far down the path of like damaged sociopath and not in the kind of the place where I want to be like gleeful, you know, sadist. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that they should have had a little bit of a turn for him. I think starting off that damaged sociopath, and I think that they should have had Kingpin's influence is what flips him into that, you know, sadistic, gleeful, like, just like cackling maniac, which like kind of think is being bullseye. Yeah. And, you know, if that would have happened in the last episode or two, that would have been cool. Uh, I agree with that for sure. I mean, I I think that, like you said, there's a good question of like, yeah, why doesn't he use a gun? Uh, I mean, he guess he does at points, but, um, sure. you know, but towards the middle and the end of the show, he kind of stops. And yeah, I also would have liked to seen like, I don't know, like I, I want to see, I know it's like the point and the metaphor and all these things, the symbolism of like Daredevil doesn't wear a suit, but I really wanted that last episode for Daredevil to be in his suit fighting Bullseye in a different suit. And I just, that's what I wanted and it yeah. didn't happen. I I agree and like I'm trying not to get too wrapped up in like the I want to see the suit I want to see the new suit because that's like such a part of like weird superhero movie culture that I'm it just feels gross to me like well we got to see what the new Iron Man armor looks like this year it's like the reason it looks different every year so they can sell more more toys you know that right like we get they've taught us to get hyped up about the suit but you know like you say that like oh the symbolism of daredevil wearing the bullseye suit but like the symbolism of what like what is it i mean the idea of we're gonna steal daredevil's suit and frame him with it fine that actually that's a twist on superhero stuff that makes sense and feels realistic and but i don't think it what does it represent in terms of the story that it's the bad guy in the suit and then you've got matt who's like back to his original like street brawler suit, but now he has ropes on his hands because I guess that's a Frank Miller image. So we have to throw it in there. Um, but but then Matt, Matt is also, you know, it's like, well, does the suit represent his bad impulses? No, because he's actually more savage and destructive 
in this season. So it's just, it doesn't, I feel like they were trying for something. It doesn't quite get there. I really would have liked to have seen him there in the last episode embrace being daredevil again. Um, and then we see Bullseye emerge as, you know, he has his own suit. He is becoming a true supervillain in the way that Matt Murdock became a true superhero by the end of season one. It would have been really cool to see Bullseye, you know, um, arrive and to see supervillains arrive into the Netflix world instead of, well, why is he still wearing the suit? Who's he trying to fool in this scene? I don't get it. It just didn't work for me. Yeah, I just assumed that he was just like, oh, the suit is like very functional. <laughs> like this suit actually provides me a lot of protection, maybe. But no, I agree. I, I think that, yeah, I was trying to like the same kind of question. Like, I think there's some sort of symbolism here, but I'm not really sure what it is. It's just like, yeah, does the suit represent him being Daredevil? Does it represent his brutality? Does it represent, yeah, I don't know. I, in my mind, it would have made sense for his like more destructive, rageful side to be represented by the not suit. Yeah. And his suit to be like the superhero, like, you know, contained rage and destruction or targeted rage and well, destruction. Yeah. And, and, and where he, now he's, he's a symbol to Hell's Kitchen. You know, he's not just some guy out on a mission for revenge. You know, now he represents something as Daredevil. I mean, I know that's kind of tropey post, um, post Dark Knight with, um, you know, you have to be a symbol, but, that's part of it. You know, that that's, that's part of the story that this thing is telling. So just, it was a weird mixed metaphor. I don't think they really understood what they were going for. Um, and I didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad they didn't kill off bullseye. Yes. Um, I'm glad that he's getting his weird grafted spine, whatever bullshit. Yeah. Um, so I hope that he comes back around sometime. Uh, I hope that I would like to see him square off against the Punisher this version of the Punisher would be mm-hmm. a good a good matchup. I also hope that in the next season of Punisher, they kind of address that, like... Because all the other heroes kind of have reasons for not being there. And not that these things have to matter. But, you know, they matter to me a little bit. But because of Frank Castle, this Frank Castle's, Netflix Frank Castle's proximity and relationship with Daredevil, and particularly Karen and yeah. Kingpin, it just kind of felt weird that, like, all this stuff is going down. And it's very public and very, like, everywhere. Yeah. And he's supposed to be still like in New York City, where yeah, he's just going to <clears throat> going to veterans meetings, right? You know, like he just. I mean, I'm sure that they will be. They'll have something where he's like, you know, he's off and he's doing something in California or something. I don't know, but yeah, hopefully, because like everyone else, like you know, Jessica Jones doesn't give a shit. Luke Cage is busy off doing stuff in Harlem, and it's also kind of like a bad guy now or something. I don't um, know. He, I mean, not bad guy, but just like, he's just like, a, like, I don't know, whatever he, that show ended kind of, like, they said it ended in a Godfather moment, but I had actually seen the Godfather, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, and then Iron Fist is like, not, he's like around the world somewhere. So like, all those make sense. It was just like, yeah, there's this like glaring hole of just like, Frank Castle's going to kill that person. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, yeah. Uh, but anyway, all, overall, I really did enjoy it. This, the action scenes were amazing. That long shot in episode four. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The prison escape. Yeah, that was so crazy. Yeah, that was really good. I um this show did two things, two tropey things that I'm really getting sick of. One is the the start of the, of the show that um the superhero loses his powers but then gets them back. Arc. Yeah. I'm so tired of that. Yep. I I just I don't I feel like 
We've seen so many different versions of that and all the life has been squeezed from it. I'm not interested in a new take on superhero loses his powers. Especially because they kind of just did that in Iron Fist season two. And it's like, please, for the love of God, like, just stop. Either they steal the powers or they lose them or they get an injury. And and like you said, it's just very like the fun part of superheroes is seeing them use their powers. Right. And using their powers in creative and interesting ways to solve problems. And them not being able to do that is frustrating. And we know that they're going to get their powers back. Because if not, who made that? Who would make this show? And I really don't want to watch a show just about Matt Murdock, blind attorney who used to be a superhero. That's not a no thank you. Um, So I know the powers are coming back. So now we're all just watching our watch like, okay, come on. He's going to get the hearing back in the one ear and it's going to be fine. And um, yeah. I'm tired of that. Um, Another thing I'm tired of in superhero movies is the rejection of being the superhero Mm -hmm. and the I'm not Daredevil anymore. Like, I'm not Spider-Man anymore. I'm not Batman anymore. I'm not Iron Man anymore. Like, I've I've seen it a hundred times and I know, no, you're going to be Spider-Man again. But now we all have to just sit here and watch the grass grow while we wait for our superhero to join us in our desire to see them be a superhero. Yeah, I think uh, down the road, a good episode for us would be to talk about the really like classic tropey overused superhero stories that literally every hero has. Like, like you said, like, you know, loses your powers or refuses or stops being that per- that superhero or the goes evil for a little bit, you know, story. It's just, there's just a couple that, and some of them are fine. You can do creative things with them sometimes, but like, just try and come up with some new storylines, please. Yeah, man. Like, I understand the, the, the impulse to be like, no, let's do a character study without the powers or let's see them, you know, let, let's see them, um, you know, there's a rejecting the call to adventure. That's a part of like the, you know, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey where at first, you know, Bilbo Baggins says, no, I'm not going with you, um, on your quest and then changes his mind and chases after them. Like, uh, that happens in a lot of these traditional mythic type stories. Um, but after we've done the superhero origin story and when it's really drawn out, it's 13 hours of television. I don't want to spend time with Matt Murdock when he's not Daredevil. I want to see Daredevil. I spent all of season one with him not being Daredevil. Let's just, we can just be Daredevil now. Um, a third thing, and this isn't so much a superhero thing, it's more of a prestige television thing. That this, luckily, this show steered away from it at the last minute. <laughs> but, um, and I think I mentioned this back when I was talking about um, Castle Rock, that horror series on, um, well, thriller series on uh, Hulu. But so many and so many um, prestige television shows do this is they ramp up to a big climax. Maybe it's not the season ending climax, but it's like, you know three quarters of the way in and we have a big cliffhanger in episode nine and then episode 10 pulls away from the action and does like a flashback episode that ends up tying in but doesn't pay off on the cliffhanger at all it's just like you know and a complete shift of momentum for quiet character study or flashback 
or let's tune into these other characters that you thought didn't matter, but they will. And this in Daredevil season three, it happens. I think it's episode 10. Episode nine, we're ramping up and we're meeting Bullseye and, um, you know, Matt is like getting back to being Daredevil and he's... um, I don't remember exactly what he's about to do, but shit is happening. And then all of a sudden we're flashing back to the nineties and Karen's partying in college. And I'm like, you motherfuckers, (laughs) you, why would you do this? And that episode luckily only spends maybe 10 or 15 minutes in the Karen backstory before getting us back into the action. But, um, that is something I see in so many TV shows and I hate it. And it just feels so self-indulgent by the showrunners and the writers to be like, um, no, 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 we can do this. Trust us. We're going to pull you away and do something artistic. And um, I I just, I, I feel like it's, the surprise factor is gone. And I feel like even when it's done well, it's more just a showing off of, look what I can do that. Um, that I can make you, I can build up all of this excitement and then I can redirect you and you'll still love me in the end. And I just, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Yeah. It's just a weird choice. And I guess, yeah, I, I never really thought about why they do it and what you're saying of like the reasons why like makes sense. But yeah, I just, it just does really pull you out of the action and I don't really understand the motivation to do that, but yeah, so I had one more question that I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you. What did you think of uh, Agent Nadim in this? The sort of everyman, straight man, the, the FBI agent. I didn't really, I, I, I couldn't connect with the character. And I also just felt like I've seen this character or someone just like him in all of these shows. Yeah. It almost seems like there has to be a cop who's on the trail of our hero and then they think our hero is the bad guy until episode 10 you know when they join forces i just feel like i've 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 seen this i don't care yeah i you know it's hard because especially because i really liked the version of this character which was um god i'm blanking on her name but the, the girl in uh punisher yes like i really felt connected to her and invested in her storyline and their connection and, and like it was very interesting and indeed so like a very pale like version of that and yeah I mean, it wasn't terrible or anything. I just, like you said, it's just like a little trait at this point, but. And it's just tough in a, in a, and I think it worked. uh, And I wish I could remember her character's name. I think she worked well in, in Punisher because we were, we were establishing who Frank Castle was. And that show was in many ways, a lot about, you know, how the world reacts to Frank Castle. Um, But at this point, where Daredevil and his little like inner circle of Foggy and Karen, um, they're so well established that I kind of know when you bring in another semi protagonist, it's like, well, this guy's doomed. He's not coming yeah. out of this. Yeah. Like it, it just it's so it's kind of transparent. So it's a little tough to engage with him in that way because he doesn't feel as much like a real character. My because of the expectations I have going into the show, I'm just like, oh, OK, this guy. OK, he's going to be good for a while. Then he's going to be bad. Then he's going to be good again. And then he's going to be dead. And we're all going to avenge his noble death like he was our best friend from <laughs> from preschool. <laughs> like, it's just I've seen it so many times. I just can't. I couldn't connect. Yeah. The character in Punisher is Agent Madani. Madani. Yeah, um, it was great. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Um, but I, I wonder uh, if we'll see a Daredevil season four or on, on Netflix or at all on Disney Plus, as it's being called now. 
as a big announcement. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so to preface it, both Iron Fist and Luke Cage were canceled by Netflix. Correct. Uh, Jessica Jones is filming now and for season three. Yeah. And Punisher is wrapped filming and should be out. They said er, very early 2019. So I would expect to see something January, February, probably. Uh, I think JJ is due out next summer. So there's a lot of speculation here um, around. I mean, obviously, Iron Fist was never their most popular show. Correct. Luke Cage, at least I thought, was a uh, audience success, if not a critical success. But um, the and the truth is that, and this is true of everything, you know, when we're talking about television shows, television shows get canceled because they are no longer profitable. That is that is why television shows get canceled. I know a lot of people, oh, you Firefly got canceled because so and so hated hates sci-fi, and that's not true. It's that the only these are business decisions, and they are made ninety nine percent of the time because a show doesn't look like it's going to be profitable. You know that the Netflix looked at Iron Fist and said, and I don't exactly know how they come up with their numbers because I'm sure they model out from how many people watch a show to how many new subscribers that show is going to bring in. And that's how they determine how profitable a show is. But that show is too expensive to produce based on what they think, the money they think it can make. Now, what I think is the interesting question here is those two shows, were they canceled or were they just a, the contract was chosen, you know, Disney chose not to renew the contract with Netflix. In the case of Luke Cage, I actually think that is is official that both of them canceled. Now, there could be more things going on behind the scenes than we realize, you know, renegotiations and things for contracts that we're not aware of, which influence that cancellation, influence that business decision. I did read that there's, you know, it's come out that there was a lot of creative differences occurring surrounding this third season of Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. I guess scripts are written and then they were kind of tore up and then it was told, no, no, we're going to go from 13 episodes to 10 episodes. And it sounds like it was a little bit of a mess. And that also contributed to the decision to cancel. Um, but I think what people, you know, like to your point, people are wondering if, well, regardless of Disney's role in the cancellations on Netflix, whether they sort of made it too expensive or changed the deal or whatever, a, is Netflix backing down from these Marvel properties in anticipation of Disney picking them up for Disney Plus? The other piece of evidence around that that I actually think is probably the most telling because Daredevil is by far the most popular, most successful of the Marvel Netflix shows, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who haven't watched any of them but Daredevil, and for, for good reason, probably, um, overall. Oh, I have enjoyed all of them. Um, they didn't really promote Daredevil the way they have in the past. It's an interesting point. Because I remember when I logged in for, you know, Luke Cage season one, Iron Fist, Daredevil season two, Defenders. I mean, it was the whole Netflix Netflix client was taken over and it was just throwing it in your face. Like, watch Daredevil, watch Daredevil, watch Defenders. Yeah. And there wasn't any of that for this. I had to, like, search it to find it, which is a weird unusual choice and i wonder if they're silently backing down from these because of something going on behind the scenes yeah that's interesting you know if if they if they think you know why would they not i mean obviously because the thing that they were promoting for me like crazy was the maniac series they really really wanted me to watch that and they really really wanted me to watch their uh 
Haunting of Hill House or whatever. Yeah, that's there. what I was getting. Uh, and it's, it's supposed to be like, you know, algorithmic, right? Like, that's the Netflix whole thing. But, like, boy, tell me, like, if anyone's Netflix account that should be targeting Daredevil to, it's probably mine. Right. <laughs> if you're not getting if you're not getting the big Daredevil splash screen, I'm guessing nobody is. So I think that Netflix is looking at it and seeing the writing on the wall. And in what world is it a good business decision for Disney to put these television shows on somebody else's service? Like there's no version, there's no reason to do that when you're selling a subscription service and the more content you have, the more people are going to sign up and that's what you want. So why would I, why would I use my intellectual property to sell memberships for Netflix when I could be using it to sell memberships for Disney plus? So I, to me, it's only a matter of time before all of these shows, all of the ones that are viable move to Disney plus there's just no reason for Disney to want Netflix to do it yeah. I mean it, if, it's the only place that is not Disney owned that the Marvel properties are shown on yeah because I mean they've got stuff on ABC and they've got stuff on freeform and they've got stuff on Hulu but now Hulu is probably going to be owned by Disney so really it's just Netflix and these are you know now kind of big names right like People know who Daredevil is. People know who yeah. Luke Cage is. Where maybe you know, ten years ago, that wasn't the case. But and if and if I'm Netflix, I have to think that some of the marketing budget I'm going to put behind Daredevil season three, I'm building recognition for a character that's going to go make money for somebody else next year. So how much you know? How much am I going to do to really, really push Daredevil season three? Right. If I if I'm if I'm pretty sure I'm not getting season four. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and we'll see, I guess they'll play it out here, but, I, and I read that, so with the Disney announcements, you know, just go over them real quick, so that, you know, they kind of, finally pulling back the curtain a little bit on the plan, so Disney Plus is going to be released uh, late next year, allegedly. Um, other things, I mean, it sounds like it's going to be a similar pricing to Netflix, more between the 8 to $14 range, yep. and uh, some of the big sort of push announcements are confirmation of a Loki show. Sure. And a prequel to a prequel to a prequel? No. Uh, a Rogue One show about Hard Pass. Cassian. <laughs> oh, Greg, I really thought you were going to like this one. <laughs> Hard Pass on that one. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting choice. I mean, I liked his character and I could I could like see a show about that being interesting, maybe. But it's just an interesting choice. Um, I mean, that Mandalorian show, uh, you know, who knows? But here's the thing. I think I have decided that I do not want any more Star Wars than just the numbered show, numbered movies, the saga. I really, I just don't care. I gave Rogue One a chance. I gave Solo a chance. Was there another one? Feels like there was another one. <laughs> I just, I just don't care. I, I'm just not interested in Cassian's story or the not Boba Fett, but Boba Fett show. I'm just like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> if this movie doesn't have a Skywalker in it, I'm just, I'm not going. That's a fair thing to feel. Uh, but yeah, so I, to your point, I, I think that, you know, they're really going to try and take everything from Netflix they possibly can yeah. and offer as much as they can across Disney Plus and then whatever they decide to do with Hulu, if they incorporate it or if they just have a separate thing, which I think they'll probably leave it separate is my guess. So my understanding of the original plans was that because Disney won't own all, they're going to own most of Hulu. Correct. 60%. Um, and that's going to be the home for the properties that Disney owns, 
but don't quite fall under the Disney brand, like your Fox television shows. Maybe you are more grown-up programs. Maybe the X-Men properties go to Hulu. Whereas the Disney, Disney Plus, I think is going to be, you know, Disney proper, Star Wars, and Marvel. Your your big kind of family-friendly, all, you know, mass audience, prestige stuff. And then Hulu is your, um, you know, more for grownups, more television focused. Yeah. More, yeah. I think that's, I think there, I don't think there's ever been like an official thing from Disney. I think it's just been like fan conjecture that makes sense, which it does make sense. And I probably think that's what they'll do, but no official word on that from my understanding. But yeah, I mean, I think they'll do that and they're going to, they own so much from Fox. They're going to be able to leverage to get people to sign up and they'll probably do some sort of package deal, right? Like get Hulu and Disney plus and ESPN plus for $30 or $40 a month or whatever. Um, cause they own all those things now. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll probably get it. I'm not going to be that guy like, Oh, I'm not going to pay for that. Yeah. I'll, I'll probably get it because having the Marvel, all the Marvel movies ever at my fingertips is probably something I'm going to want. Same for star Wars. I, and I have a young child, so <laughs> I will have Disney. I already have Disney plus. Right. So, but interesting. I'm glad to see. It sounds like they're going to actually just pull all the Marvel movies from Netflix. So I'm surprised they can do, but I guess those agreements are written that way. So I, I would imagine that the more recent things there's probably, I mean, there's always going to be a couple of little stragglers that their contract is good through the end of whatever, whatever. But I would think anything that has come to the platform since Disney had this plan has that clause of like, we can pull this when we launch our thing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, speaking of more Netflix, uh, you watched uh, big mouth season two, right? I did watch big mouth season two. It was um, funny. <laughs> I, I think Big Mouth might be my favorite thing on television. Wow. That's bold um, words. And it's hard to say that in a world where Bob's Burgers is also having a very strong season right now. But um, yeah, man, like Big Mouth season two, like it hit me right in my feel guts. Like, boy, oh boy. The Shame Wizard. I was like, oh, my God. Like, that was like a therapy breakthrough for me. Like, the introduction of the Shame Wizard and then all the kids beating the Shame Wizard. I was like, oh my god. Like, I see things so clearly now. Like, I was just... I That show is just phenomenal. And they're getting better. And, like, their Planned Parenthood episode. Yeah. Like, man, you guys are, like, doing PSAs now. And <laughs> you have a point of view. And then a bunch of people got pissed off about the fact that they did a Planned Parenthood episode. And then Nick Kroll was basically like, yeah, we did that. We're going to keep doing that. Fuck you. Like, I was like, yes. Nick Kroll, good God. Yeah, I binged it all on Monday, like a couple days ago. Uh, so that was quite the day to watch it all in one go. Um, I was homesick from work, so. I watched a big chunk of it when I was homesick. <laughs> I have to say, though, I, I started it like I was like eating lunch and I started watching. I'm just like, this is not really an eating show. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm going to just shove this away for a little bit. But uh, Rick, the hormone monster is pretty grotesque. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I just think that I have a hard time explaining to people cause like, it's definitely not a show for Shay. It's just, it's just too over the edge. Um, uh, but a lot of people at my at work really like it. So we're talking about it, but like trying to talk about it in hushed voices to not sound weird. And another friend of mine said like, I didn't really get into it the first episode or two. I was just like, Oh, I remember masturbating. Yeah. That was crazy. Like, and I'm like, well, you weren't paying attention. Like the show is like, it's this weird mix of like really lowbrow humor and like really like a good study into like what it 
what it is to be a kid going through puberty and yes. how freaking weird it is. And the damage that a lot of us, that it, you know, that high school and puberty did to a lot of us. And the show has a point of view on like undoing that damage and like preventing it in future generations. Like it actually like, it's a show with a really considered and powerful like stance Right. Like it's a show on a mission. It's it's, it's amazing. I was told that uh, they actually like consulted with like child psychologists and things to like examine and explore some of these ideas. Wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, its ability to just go from like, yeah, like the, the humor to just be all over the place. And they're doing a little mix of everything. You know, they've got some nested humor. They've got the just like the gross outs. They've got the, you know, everything. I just it's really, really funny. <laughs> And yeah. the voice work is amazing. The voice cast is great. Its attention to detail is awesome. I love when they went to, I forget what it was called, but when they went through the portal, where, where all the, the horror monsters and the, oh, yeah. And they went to the, the Shame Wizard's, um, like office. And he, he, from, you know, four or five episodes previous, like mentioned his, like, Nazi dildo yes. paraphernalia and like they're on the wall and I'm like this is the kind of thing that like you know you catch on this I mean I caught it the first time but like you know a second or third viewing we're like oh yeah that's right they said that like that kind of thing that really like I think I want to go back and rewatch the first season because I just feel like I probably enjoy it even more as you get to know the characters and their points of view mm-hmm. and they did a really good job of also expanding the cast of the show yeah and focusing on some of the other characters I mean my gosh Caleb the 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 child who's clearly like on the autistic spectrum yes. with the backpack is probably my favorite character that and uh that and pitbull featuring ludicrous (laughs) which is the best name Uh, yeah yeah so it's just got it's got it's got absurdist humor it's got like a little bit of everything that i think is is it's not it seems like i think for a lot of people who maybe like just watch it out of the corner of their eye or see the first episode they think it's just like jerking off jokes and that's all it's doing but it's doing everything every direction yeah, and I think it's easy to miss the heart of the show um, if you just catch, like, the the grosser stuff, the more shocking stuff. But the truth is that it needs to do the gross stuff and the shocking stuff to, I think, get its core message across. Because it really needs you to remember that, like, no, like, 13-year-old kids are, like, fucked up and sexually confused and... They're fucked up and sexually confused about gross stuff for gross reasons. And if we're going to be able to talk about like the effects that puberty has on people and the way that our society treats it, like you need to get on board with this. So some of the gross out and the shocking stuff is on purpose to put you in the headspace to remember that like, yeah, these kids are masturbating constantly and we need to accept that as a fact in order to move forward with the conversation. This is a little bit of an awkward question, Greg, but as a father, what have you learned about this show and how you're going to sort of like help your child or children through this like terrible time? Well, as a father of a daughter, I understand that um, a lot of the puberty stuff um, is probably going to naturally fall more to Karen because she's more familiar with the uh, biology than I am. (laughs) And uh, there's a lot of probably tips and tricks about dealing with that side of things that I, of course, have no idea about. Um, But, I mean, I think that the idea of shame and repression that Big Mouth deals with a lot, like, um, and I think the second season is very much about, like, not being ashamed about the change that you're going through and not letting 
shame get the better of you through that. Um, obviously still acting responsibly, but not, you know, not letting shame run your life and understanding that like, look, this is a weird time. It's going to be weird. And being accepting of that, I think seems like a noble goal. How? I have no idea. (laughs) I've got a good 12, 13 years to figure it out. So, um, uh, I don't want to be like any of the parents on the show, though. I can say that for sure. You don't want to be Fred Armis' character? He's not one of the parents. Yeah, oh, no, is. Fred Armis. I'm, I'm confusing him with the coach. Oh, God, no. no. You don't want to be coach, Steve. No. Even though he's the man. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, no, it just got me thinking a lot about, like, what is the correct way to do all this stuff as an apparent? But I got some time on that, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would recommend anyone who uh, like I, I was really funny because I was I really wanted to watch it, but one of my prime TV times right now is my lunch break at work. Huh. After I watch like most of Daredevil, but I'm like I can't watch this no. at work. <laughs> no, I'm gonna get on all the lists. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so I waited to watch that one. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, yeah. So I have one more Netflix thing to bring up while we're on the topic, Greg. And I, I have you? Did you watch? Have you watched the second season of Making the Murder? No. Okay. Uh, I did, and I would recommend it to people. Uh, you like this sort of thing, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I enjoy the true crime. I finished it a couple of days, like day or two ago, and uh, I will say that it's worth it alone just to watch. It gave me a really good understanding of um even more of a common understanding of our criminal justice system and the appeals system because you sort of track both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey's cases through their respective def- new defense teams trying to you know exonerate them and get them out of prison through very different methods. So you've kind of got a, got a compare and contrast thing where uh, Stephen Avery's lawyer is um, Kathleen Zellner. She's a really famous post-conviction, uh, wrongful conviction lawyer. I think she's gotten 18 people out of prison, which is just insane. Um, and she does it all pro bono and she just, you know, picks you and you go. And she's like, no filter, I mean, not, not no filter, but just like, she's a badass. Just put it that way. Like, she doesn't care. She, you know... She's just like a really intense person. So she's going about it one way. And then Brendan Dassey's team is uh, in the Northwestern Law School. They have a center for wrongful conviction of youth. And they're trying to go. They're going through uh, the appeals courts and track that whole story. So they kind of happen. You know, they kind of bounce back and forth. And it's actually like very interesting. I, I was pretty engaged the whole time. Sometimes those true crime shows can get a little bogged down or get get filler. But for the most part. I was really engaged and learned a lot. So uh, there's a lot still up in the air about those two people and what's going on. But I mean, it's the only thing bad about true crime shows, especially ones happening now, is that like I get bo- like I get antsy and go look up the spoil the quote unquote spoilers. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, oh, I know he's not out of jail yet. <laughs> right. Well, and 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 if he if he'd been released, like you would have heard, like it would this would have been front page of CNN because it's a story that everyone knows. It's a famous story. You would have heard if Stephen Avery had been acquitted or, you know, right. exonerated at this point. And I think the other interesting thing they talk about a little bit in the show, but I hope they talk about it more is this is not a, this is an ongoing thing, right? Like this is not a retrospect. So what effect is, I mean, the, the, the fact that this documentary was made is having an effect on their case yes. and the people involved in the case including, you know, some examples are, well, Kathleen's owner herself taking the case. The one woman, Stephen Avery's girlfriend or friend or whatever she is, like, had been writing to her for, like, 
10 years, like, please take this case. And not until the show came out, which does, there's some people who question her motives, right? Like mm-hmm. she's on the show, like a lot. I mean, she's mm-hmm. basically the star of the show. And then, which is interesting perspective, but also they had, you know, a witness or two come forward, you know, and say like, oh, I saw this on TV. And like, I can tell you that's not what happened. Hmm. But, uh, and she really is like, she goes through kind of a meticulous detail, like every piece of evidence and tries to sort of like recreate it and try and understand it. And she's really just claims to just be like, I just want to find out what happened. And if I find out my client did it, then like, I'm not going to help them, but I just want to know what happened. She's not just trying to win the case. She's trying to get to the truth. At least that's what she says, which is not how most criminal law functions in the United States today. (laughs) But yeah, uh, I'd recommend it to to people who like that sort of thing. And I mean, I assume they'll probably make another season down the road, but I think that unfortunately there's been, both people have sort of hit some dead ends in their cases, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you feel about if they did or did not do it. Although I will say that the second season, well, the first season is certainly not balanced and fair or anything like that. I will say the second season is very obviously telling you that they believe these, neither of these people did anything, Yeah, which is, you know, they're just showing their hand completely, which is fine. But I'd rather have a documentary do that than try and say they're being right. balanced and not. Exactly. So, yeah. <clears throat> do you think you'll watch it then? I'm sure I will. I'm sure I'll get around to it. Um, uh, I've just had other things on my plate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and other things. What, what my- have those been, Greg? Well, speaking of Netflix things, I watched um, a couple of uh, spooky, uh, creepy, creepy, creepy crawlies no. uh, on Netflix. And as I was making my list of like things I'd been watching, I realized like, oh man, I've just been watching all like dark, weird, horror, suspense things. But whatever, here we are. Let's talk about them. So I watched a Netflix original called Apostle starring um, an actor whose name I forget, but he's the star of Legion on FX. Um, Also starring Martin Sheen, who is a British actor who you've seen in everything, but I didn't realize it was him until the credits. And I was like, oh shit, excellent job, Martin Sheen, and playing, you know, playing off type. Um, And it's directed by the guy who directed the Raid movies. Oh yeah, I heard about this movie. um, But it's kind of a horror movie. Or kind of a thriller, depending on how you want to really classify it. Um, the setup is, so it takes place in like 1905 or something like that on some remote Welsh island. And our hero, the guy from Legion, um, he's coming to the to the island to infiltrate the cult that lives on the island because that cult has kidnapped his sister. And um, then turn of the century spookiness ensues um it's actually pretty good um it's not it's not perfect but uh one of the one of the things that i feel like it gets it goes back and forth on is the the style of the dialogue because in some scenes the characters speak in the kind of flowery elaborate language that you associate with like civil war letters home you know Mm -hmm. um and that's just the way they're speaking. And on one hand, I'm like, I I, feel, I know that's the way people like wrote letters, but I don't think that's the way people actually spoke in the 1900s, but whatever, fine. But then they'll go and then all of a sudden they'll go into like a more naturalistic style of speaking. And it doesn't feel like a 
choice like oh when the characters are relaxed they're you know speaking with the elaborate flowery language and then when they're stressed and running from the monster you know then they're speaking in a more what we would consider naturalistic it just seemed like sloppy script writing to me but so that was a problem um but the atmosphere of it the feeling of time and place outside of the kind of the weird dialogue mix-ups um was very good i would say if you like the movie the witch uh this is this shares some dna with that and um yeah it's just a good little uh creepy crawly it's got some gory bits that uh would be tough for people who don't like gory bits but are they uh how spooky is it there is one scene that has some spooky visuals that will stick with you. Um, but it's not really jump scares. It's more of a, it's almost a, there's almost a mystery element to it because he's on this island and he's pretending to be a part of the cult and he's trying to find his daughter and you're, or not his daughter, his sister. And you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on and if there's anything supernatural happening or not and uh, so on. But there is one very, uh, very, very, I guess spooky is the word to put it, scene. It's also very, very good. But um, yeah, I would I would put it on a, uh, like, if you're worried about not being able to get a good night's sleep after this, this is on a 7 or 8 out of 10 for a person who loses sleep because of movies. Oh boy, okay. Well, I almost like threw it on the other day because like it wasn't really advertised as like a horror movie. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, the guy from The Raid, he's good. I'll watch this. And I was like, nah, maybe not. And I'm glad you didn't because that sounds spooky. Yeah, it's got some spooks. <clears throat> but maybe um, a little more along the lines of the spooky I could handle as opposed to, I don't know. So for a spooky that you could handle, also on Netflix, uh, is a independent film, very low budget, um, almost no budget movie called The Endless that I actually really enjoyed for um, its concept and some pretty clever things they did um, from kind of a technical perspective. Um, so the premise is you've got two brothers who, um, at some point in the past escaped from like a UFO death cult. It takes place in the modern, in the modern day. They escaped sometime in like the eighties or nineties and they've been having trouble adapting to life outside of the cult. And, um, for some reason, one of the brothers says the one brother who's like having an even tougher time is like, let's just go back to the compound for like the weekend and just make sure everybody's OK, because, you know, you said they were all going to commit suicide, but I think they're still alive. And so they go back to this cult um, and things get weird. <laughs> um I would. I don't know if I'd call it a horror. I don't know if I'd call it a sci-fi. It uses elements of all those things. It's very low budget, so you get some of the things you get from low budget, where you've got inconsistent acting ability, you know, between different people, and there's only so much you can do in terms of special effects. Um, but uh, it's really neat, and it keeps you guessing right up until the end. Um, and uh, it's it's generally pretty neat, especially if you like Lovecraft style, uh, cosmic horror gets a little Lovecrafty towards the end. Um, the endless, it's still streaming on Netflix. I really enjoyed it. That sounds really cool. I'll probably, Um, I've been kind of like kind of itching for a new spooker, but, uh, I haven't really, that maybe I'll watch that with, uh, not with Shay, that she would never, but, um, um, I'm more afraid than, than me. It's her, but, uh, yeah. So cool. The endless you said, the endless. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, Speaking I, of movies, uh-huh. 
Are you pretty excited that the Deadwood movie is actually entering production? Guess. I don't know. I mean, I loved Deadwood, but I also feel like um, towards the end, Deadwood didn't really kind of lost direction. And it didn't really, I, I feel like Deadwood didn't really know what it wanted to be as we got to the end of the show. So I don't know what the movie wants to be. Have you heard the the premise? No, I, I don't know anything other than, than it's happening. So. so like the, whatever they call it, the ta- you know, little blurb about it is supposedly it's going to be, I think it's t- 15 or 20, I forget the exact number, but some anniversary, 15 or 20 years anniversary of North Dakota statehood. Hmm. And everyone comes back to town and tensions run high. That's kind of an odd choice for me. Yes. Um, because I feel like there was tensions were still running high at the time. Um, I mean, I get that, you know, it's, there's a, a, a smartness to making it set kind of Star Wars style, like the amount of time after the actors are kind of the appropriate age and things like that. But I just wonder what, you know, since it kind of didn't end with like any real fi- finale or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, like you've, you've mentioned, I think you said this before, like, it kind of ended how Deadwood should end. It's just like, life keeps going on in this shitty fucking town. Yep. But, um... <laughs> Things will be tough for another 50 fucking years getting yeah. used to it. So, but, like, there was really no, like... It, it's an interesting take on a sort of a revival where it kind of didn't really end, but... I don't know. Um, I mean, they had everyone coming back, except for uh, Powers Booth, who passed away, unfortunately. Sure. But, um... So that's kind of cool to see all those, all those people again. Uh, you know however many odd players and a lot of them went on to do like really big stuff. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, um, a lot of faces there who have maybe graduated out of television, but I just, I don't know if, cause that premise feels really contrived to me that everybody's going to come back for essentially the class reunion. Yeah. It just seems, especially in, you know, this period in American history where travel was expensive and dangerous and took months like, you're just going to go back to the horrible murder burg just to, like, see the sights. That just doesn't feel right to me. Um, and I'm also not sure what Deadwood has to say now after Dead, you know, because after all the things that came after Deadwood, yeah. that it just seems like, I don't know. I don't know. It just doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, excited. I'm excited because it's Deadwood and I loved it, you know, and it really to me still to this day is probably one of from a writing perspective i think one of the most mechanically sound written shows i've mm-hmm. i've watched and i was just enthralled by it when i watched it i tried to go rewatch it the other day and the the, the quality of what the one i had the copy i had was just like terrible and i could not watch it but um i just think that they don't think they have like a, an hd remaster of it or anything like that which is unfortunate some of the hbo shows look pretty rough actually like i was trying to watch the wire and i was like oh my god this looks like garbage yeah well that the wire i think the wire specifically is notorious for having a that the dvd transfer from the original source uh was like notoriously bad and now that's mm-hmm. all we have i think is the situation with the wire, but yeah, there's a lot of shows like that. I hope that they can recover some of that because that's how it happened to Buffy too, and and it's a shame because it just makes it look like garbage. Uh, yeah, so I yeah I kind of have the same reservations you do. I think that that yeah that plot line feels a little contrived, and I I just wonder like w- the tensions that arose was because people were living in this area and and they're experiencing the issues of living there. Like just going back to visit, what's going to be the right driving plot? Because I just don't know. At this point, they've all moved on with their life, theoretically. I mean, maybe some people stayed there. Right. But they've moved on, and they've all moved on to a point in their life where 
they're comfortable enough to go back to Deadwood to see the sights. So I guess everybody made out okay. I don't know. But if you like a gritty Western, let me tell you about a little movie I saw called Bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk? Yep. Okay. Um, this, uh, this is a little bit under the radar. Uh, stars Kurt Russell as a sheriff. So already, fine. Sign me up. Uh, and Matthew Fox as like a gunslinger. So, okay, sure. Why not? It um, starts out feeling like a pretty standard Western. Uh, natives have kidnapped a woman and a posse sets out to rescue them. Um, things take a couple turns. It's uh, it's pretty good. Gets super grisly at the end. So if you have issues with grisly sights, maybe not this movie is for you. But um, overall, pretty well put together little movie um, that uh, Kurt Russell does a great job. All the actors, it's actually, it's really essentially a cast of four for most of the movie. And they do a great job. Um, and it gives you a sense and a feeling of what it must have really been like to travel and, you know, to go out into the, into the wilds in this era and, you know, how, you know, the dangers of just a twisted ankle and, you know, um, how important your horse was and you don't want to lose your horse and little things like that. And, uh, some pretty well-written dialogue as well. Um, maybe not as natural as one would expect, but just good, fun to listen to. It does have some problems with, it tries really hard, even though it's a movie about Indians kidnapping a white woman, to not be problematic, but you can only, you can only slide so far on that spectrum. Uh, you're already on the problematic scale. You can only do so much. Um, and it's also weird because, and I feel like a lot of media now that is set in the American past, all the characters who are, who are like capital N, capital R, not racist, have to make a really big show of it all throughout the movie, even though they are very unracist for the time period in which they live. Like they would be a total anomaly for how not racist they are in the 1800s, but they need to keep reminding the audience that, look, I know this was a racist time, but our hero was not one of them. And I'm not saying that's not worth talking about, but sometimes it starts to be a little bit fourth wall breaking because it's like, they kind of have to keep reminding us. Um, kind of like how in some movies when, uh, there's a like teenage girl who the movie really wants us to, uh, um, ogle and they make a point to like weirdly call out, Oh yeah, she just turned 18 last month. Like, <laughs> no, like oh, that's a weird thing to say, but okay. Like just to make sure we're all clear, it's okay to sexualize this person. <laughs> like it just, it becomes that fourth wall breaking of like, who was that for? Who was that message for? Um, well, and it's also like, com- it's also like anachronistic a little bit and that's what's breaking the fourth wall for you. Right. Like it is, I don't know if it's so much the anachronism, but it's like, it gets to a point where like, I get it. I get it. Kurt Russell's not a racist. I got it. Okay. Wait. Oh, you're telling me again? Oh, okay. No, I get it. He's not a racist, but Matthew Fox is. Oh, no. So Kurt Russell's not a racist. Got it. Like, it just, the repetition, it starts to be like, okay, I I get it. It starts to become fourth wall breaking because it it almost is a big disclaimer. Like, we're just stopping the action to remind you that this character is uncharacteristically non-racist, which is, it's okay if the character is, but then 
you know, the constant reminders become fourth wall breaking. Yeah. One show I think that did that really well was um, Hell on Wheels because uh, the main character played by Anson Mount, um, you know, he's like your very typical Western person and that he was like from the South and was a Southern soldier and his family was murdered by Union men and, you know, on Sherman's March and he's just trying to get justice and he's an old honorable kind of Southern soul, uh, you know. But, like, they don't shy away from the fact that, like, he owned slaves. Um, I don't, like, he was kind of said to be like, kind of like a poor, like, not super wealthy, so he didn't own, like, thousands of them, but, like, had a couple. And I think, I think, but, like, you know, then becomes friends or kind of friends with the character played by Common. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's implied that, like, he's not really overtly racist, but it doesn't be you over the head with it because like well he's by his actions of working with this person and treating him with respect he's not being racist but it's not it's not making scenes out of it where he's like constantly defending him from racists or speaking up for him and it's like there's a way to do that which is fine i mean i still think it the anachronism bothers me a little bit because it's fine because it's fiction you know you're allowed to make things up but i think it sometimes i think it can give people false because people don't always remember that it's fiction they think that you know a lot of our remembrance of the past is informed by popular culture about the past and i think it can be a little bit misleading in almost like a negative way to try and rose tint the past that way that like oh there's all these heroes of of gallant and non-racism about and it's like yes and you know say like oh like 99 out of 100 people are racist it's like no 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 like 999,000 out of a million people were racist like it, that's the numbers you're looking at like people who weren't racist were like the extreme of the extreme of the extreme. Right. This was just accepted fact for these people even, for the most part. Even Abraham Lincoln was a racist. Right. Like, like um, and I think that, that that's actually part of a larger issue with the conversation about race and racism in America today is that for a lot of Americans, racism starts at clan members. And anything you do before you're a member of the clan, well, I'm not a racist. And when we paint racism in media as a certain way, and you've got a character who's like a former slave owner, but now they have a black friend, so they're not a racist, like that enables the line of thought of like, I'm not a racist. I work with a black guy down at the office and I'm nice to him. Therefore, I'm not a racist. Right. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I support I support racist policies and I defend it when cops shoot unarmed black guys. And sometimes I use the N word when I'm drunk and, you know, and, and all those things, but I'm nice to one black guy. Therefore I'm not racist. And that framing for a lot of people works. And we need to have a more nuanced and confrontational conversation about it. But when we have characters in fiction who are like, you know, um, you know, where, the 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 fiction uses the shorthand of oh he's nice to this particular character therefore we infer he is nice to all of them because that's the shorthand right um then we end up with then we end up with that problem of i've got a black friend therefore i'm not racist and and i also think that we have a problem in our 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 media where um we we don't portray characters who are um like 99%, well, that's a bad way of saying it, but like they're good in every other way, but they're racist. Um, we always make it like they're a sneering, awful villain who is racist. 
So, you know, the racism always comes bundled with like lecherous psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's easy for someone who might actually be a racist in the real world to look at them and like, well, no, racism is something that the bad guys in movies do. And I'm not a bad guy. Um, so it becomes harder to look at it. Like, you know, I think that, and then I, I don't know how you write fiction where you have a character who has a lot of good qualities, but also is racist um, and have that be a tension that the show or the movie or whatever has to confront. That's got to be tough to have a character who is a racist, but also not the villain, because how do you write that character and not have it be like eh, racism? You can get away with it if you like, you like save a busload of kids. You know, how do you do it? I don't know. But um suffice to say, nobody's doing a great job right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard when you're dealing, especially we're dealing with stuff in the past, you know when literally everyone was yes. So to show anything else feels kind of icky. Yes. Cause you're diminishing the fact that everybody was, and like you said, building kind of building all these excuses for, uh, yeah. For people who thinking that who, who are, that think they aren't are along those lines, but then, you know, well, what are you going to have not make any movies out the past anymore? Because you don't, you can't write that person who's a hero, but also racist. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I don't really know the answer because I think it's just difficult. I think just an acknowledgement that like, you know, people were, were people and, and in different, different contexts, they were racist, you know, in the past. And there's a lot of movies where it probably just won't come up, you know, but you know, and it's also not every movie's goal to be making a statement about race in America, sure. but yeah, it's, that's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, I think one way to, to start is to have more historical movies that are essentially told from the perspective of the minority. Right. So that, because I think what's missing in our fiction about racism is good illustrations of how racism is systematized and how racism is in many ways, a context in which we all operate as opposed to a way that bad guys think about black people and that racist systems, um, how they reward certain kinds of behavior within the majority who might not be racist, but um, certain types of behavior rewarded or how um, how a racist system can victimize members of the majority in in subtle ways. And we're kind of missing that. And I think that um, that would be one way to start to kind of unpack it, um, to center it on the, you know, on the experience of of, you know, people of color in America's past and focus not on racism as a bad thing that white people do. It is, but also as a a system um, that everyone is operating in. I think that could be a way to elevate the conversation, but also maybe avoid some of these pitfalls of like, well, I know it's the 50s, but my hero can't be a racist. Right. And you know. I think exploring like the levels and nuances of racism and it's not just like like you said, it's not just just like gender relations. It's not like you're a rapist or you're, you know, a champion of gender rights. Like there's a lot of in between that, that it's a system that we're all operating in and trying to figure out and the using it as just like a, a character trait or a switch that just is flipped in certain people or not people is very simplistic and not helpful. Yeah. And I actually think. Mad Men did a pretty good job of this with sexism and showing that showing the ways in which um, 
the prevailing system, the prevailing sexist system manipulated everyone and how, you know, the masculine dominance, not only did it do awful things to the female characters, but, um, I think his name, I can't remember the tall blonde guy ended up losing an eye because of bullshit macho nonsense. And, um, and I'm thinking specifically about, did you, did you watch Mad Men? I've watched, you know, maybe a season's worth across the, all the seasons. So anyway, there's a, I mean, I'm going to spoil a late episode for you, but, um, there's a, there's a sequence in which Joan, um, Christina Hendricks's character, um, basically in order to like get an account, she agrees with the other, like, you know, partners at, uh, Sterling Cooper to sleep with this guy, uh, this potential client, um, because, and they all kind of realize that it's gross, but they all kind of are okay with it. And you see that like, oh, just this system has put, you know, and the way everyone is treated and the way every the expectations that are around everyone has put everyone in this awful situation. But nobody was really a monster about it. But we all found ourselves in this awful dilemma because of the system of sexism. So I think that's a an approach, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, if, if yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I think that another approach is to like try and look outside of like if you're gonna you know sort of a sort of approach racism in other contexts too like don't make the only movies that have racist characters or deal with race be set in america between <laughs> you know 1840 and 1970 like or i guess present day but like you know racism was a was a war is a was it is a world construct it's not i mean there's there's specific things about american racism but like you know, it's that wasn't the only racism that existed. And to sort of unpack it in other areas can also be a helpful way to sort of get people to understand and, and view these things outside of the American context, which isn't the only context. True. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, awesome. So <laughs> speaking of more movies and AMC. So I know you don't watch The Walking Dead and I haven't watched The Walking Dead in probably uh, two seasons, but I'm sure you've been hearing the rumblings of some things going on. Uh, with, mm-hmm. um, you know, major characters leaving the show and other major characters being signed on for more bits of the show. But the biggest thing I want to talk about is, so Rick Grimes, the main character, is has left, I, I guess. And the word of the street is that, oh, no, he's not done. They're going to be making TV movies for him. Yes. And to continue his story. And uh, I think this is AMC's first foray into this, is it not? Because this also comes on the heel, the news of that we're getting a Breaking Bad movie of I some mean, kind. First of all, I think I, I I I have nothing invested in the Walking Dead TV show. Sure, um, but to me, and I, I so obviously I, I'm not speaking for Walking Dead fans, but this thing they did with the Rick character seems like the biggest fuck you to fans, the biggest bait and switch bullshit. I I I can't believe there weren't riots in the streets about this because you set it up. The central character is leaving the show. This is his final episode. And apparently he's got all this emotional buildup and you get people all prepared to say farewell to their beloved character. And then you're like, psych, get ready for the movies. It just seems like such a fuck you, such emotional manipulation. Um, Like that's just, you know, 
I, I think that they knew all along what their plan was, and that's what they should have told the fans. Like, you know what? We're going to move Rick into his own series of movies, and this is his last episode on the main show. Yeah. Like, I think it's just such a big fuck you to manipulate people like that. I mean, it's maybe not the, the first time they've care. done that. <laughs> no, it's not. They've done a lot of this kind of thing. Um, and I, I, I think it's... I think that's abusive to your audience and I don't appreciate it. Yeah. But my, my context was more less about the actual show or the kind more about the business decision of AMC seeming, you know, in quick succession announcing, not necessarily announcing, but I guess basically the breaking news of like two of their major TV series are being pushed into the movie realm. Yeah. Um, the walking dead thing. I understand because the entire model of the walking dead from, you know, season two has been like, let's make as much money on this as we possibly can. You know, we are going to ride this thing into the ground and then some. So the fact that they're, you know, of course, they've got a, they've already got two ongoing series plus a thousand uh, shitty mobile games. Plus, <laughs> you know, a line of relatively successful adventure games have their own drama going on right now. But um, but the thing about Breaking Bad was... Better Call Saul notwithstanding, um, but I feel like that was a, a a risky play that they did fine. But the thing about Breaking Bad always seemed like the model was not, we're going to ride this thing into the ground. It was, we made a beautiful, perfect thing. Leave it. We did it. We did Breaking Bad. Bye, everybody. But now it seems like they're not doing that. Now they're going to make a movie about what happened to Jesse after the end of the series. And... I don't like this at all. Yeah, it's weird from a creative decision. It's also weird from a business model. I just don't, I don't think they need to do that to like make money. Like they just, I mean, is it Better Call Saul is like really well respected and everyone seems to like it. I mean, I believe Gilmer, Gilmer de Toro says that it's better than Breaking Bad, which I don't know about that, but um, it's a good show. I mean, I haven't kept up with it, but I liked what I, when I watched it. Um, but yeah, so I don't know why this sudden desire to return. Um I mean, I, I kind of trust, was it Vince? Vince Gilligan. Yeah, Gilligan, that like, he wouldn't do this without a purpose, but I don't know. Money can talk a big, big game, I guess. Yeah. And when you've had, <laughs> I mean, Vince Gilligan is a human being. And when you've had people for the last 10 years telling you, you made the best television that ever was on television, like maybe you start to think like, yeah, I could do it again. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, I could definitely do that. Um, So... I don't know. It seems like a bad idea to me. It's clear that AMC is trying to experiment with different business models. I wonder if there was a leadership change that wants them to see if um, movies might be a more profitable model than ongoing television series. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious if this is another, you know, I've been kind of talking this thing I bring up a lot is like this blurring of the lines, especially in like, quote unquote, shared universes of, you know, TV and movie. Because I, if they were smart with The Walking Dead, what they would do is, and I have not watched Fear the Walking Dead, uh, I probably will never watch it, but if they were smart, they would do something and make a plan and they'd say, okay, we're going to end The Walking Dead thing, the whole thing, in like three years. And via these two shows and Rick's movies, we will somehow bring it all together and end it in some satisfying finale in some way. Are they going to do that? No, because like you said, their model is to drive it into the ground. But hypothetically, they could do it that way. And I think, I just think we're really going to, 
this is an example of a, probably a bad example, but you know, oftentimes the first time trying something is bad, but at a, an increasing blurring this line between TV and movies, especially with the streaming platforms and these big networks and premier television, uh, also shown by like this Loki TV show and whatever else. I think yeah. we're going to see more of that in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, the lines were always just limitations of technology and budget. And as business models change and technology changes, the concept of this is a movie and this is a television show. And um, uh, they're just they, they were arbitrary to begin with. Um, it was just, you know, in order to get the budget to do certain things, you had to bring it to theaters where people would pay a lot to see it versus um, hoping you could get a soap company to pay to pay to put it on television in exchange for advertising. Um, and as the advertising model drifts away from television, it starts to become like, well, we can make things as big as we want on TV. So, yeah, it's just it's the lines, I think, were a the line between television and movie was always a a limitation of technology and, 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 and business. And eventually it's going to disappear. It's like the, the difference between an EP and an album in the music world and the nonsense that that still, that still happens about like, well, it's only five tracks. So it's an EP. It's like, yeah, but it's still it's 90 minutes of music. Well, it's an EP. So we only pay you <laughs> half. Like, because yeah. at one point, that meant it got pressed onto a smaller disc of vinyl and packaged <laughs> differently and shipped differently um, to record stores. And it's just, it's, it's an artifact of an old way of doing things that just doesn't need to exist anymore. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's always been an arbitrary, you know, division because like you said, of, of business decisions and, and the model and, and like technology. So I think that, yeah, I just, I'm curious to see when someone really commits to it and does something interesting with it. Um, but Greg, we talked a lot about TV and movies to far tonight, yeah. but I know that you're reading something, reading uh, something geez. near and dear to my heart. Uh, geez. And I want to talk a little bit about it and, and just hear how you're going. How's it going for you? Well, so I finally against, against my better judgment started, uh, the eye of the world, which is the first book in the wheel of time series. I don't know if you can call it a series, the interminable mass of pages. That is the wheel of time. Um, it's something like 800 volumes long and each volume is a billion pages of <laughs> just the tropiest high fantasy. Um, and I'm about halfway through, I think maybe a third. And the reason I went for it was, I don't know if you've been watching the news, <laughs> but things are a bit shitty. And I really just needed some escapism in my in my reading. And nothing is more escapist than just super cheesy, super tropey high fantasy about a farm boy who gets a magic sword and goes to magic camp to learn to be a cool wizard sorcerer fighter man. And his dad probably isn't his dad. And there's a prophecy and um, a dragon that is also a mountain and uh, magic. And it's all the things that you, that um, all the things that George R. R. Martin looked at and said, well, fuck that. I'm going to make it about a rape. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but man, I mean, it is, it is just so cheesy and like, so right down the, just right down the barrel of the camera. Like, yep, I'm doing it. 
I, it, the idea that Robert Jordan had, had was, Hey, what if, what if it was Lord of the Rings, but I did it <laughs> instead. And it works. It works. It is, it is scratching the itch of, you know, just a, a warm, cozy blanket that I can wrap around myself. Um, so yeah, I'm enjoying it. It's not blowing my mind. It's not surprising me. It's not doing anything unique or original, but it is doing that very stereotypical, very tropey thing, uh, gracefully and without any missteps. Um, it's just, it's, it's doing exactly what you want it to do, um, and staying out of its own way. So I respect it. Um, like I say, it's not a, you know, I don't think there, I have not, I don't think I've, I don't think I've found an original idea yet in 250 pages, but Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would never. I'd be surprised if someone said that I of the world like blew their mind or it was doing something super original because it really doesn't. I will say that you know, uh, those you know, obviously those tropes could not be sustained for fourteen books. Uh, so I think you'll see a lot of that breakdown and not in the sort of purposeful breaking down that uh, you know deconstruction that a Martin might do, but mm-hmm. I think that you'll just see an evolution of the story. And if you decide to continue past the first book, um, hypothetically, you would see a change and, and I think you'd see things. I think you would see novel ideas emerge. Um, also, I hope you know that that mountain is not actually a dragon. I don't know, man. It's all the dragons a metaphor, man. I don't know. <laughs> Who cares? No, it's not. I'm sure there's going to be a real ass dragon eventually. Oh, well, um, you yeah. no, no, no. You're not doing this and not having a real dragon in it. Come on. Do you want me to spoil something for you? Uh, is there a real dragon? There's not a real dragon. That's bullshit. I, I'm not lying. There are no dragons in real time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Yeah. There's like, you know, you've met some of the monsters, but like. The ring race that are definitely not ring race. <laughs> yeah. And the orcs that are not orcs. Like, oh man, it just, it just feels like he just got out of a notebook and like wrote a list of all the things from Tolkien and just came up with a new name for all of it. And was like, all right, here we go. Yeah. Like the Trollocs kind of like creeped me out when I read it. I was just like, cause like they're, I mean, I know they're just stand in for orcs, but the way they're described is like, yeah, there's like pieces of things. Like it's got hooves, but also a beak. And like a bird face, and it's just like, ew, like I don't want that. Yeah. And um, then, but, then, but then like the um the midril, the which are like they literally just ring race. I'm just like, you really just lifted this one, man. Like you didn't even try. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, but yeah. you know, it's fine. It it's is the fine. most it is it is it is probably the most competent Tolkien knock nineties Tolkien knockoff that you're gonna get. Yeah, yeah. Um I am also reading uh 90s fantasy right now ironically enough mm-hmm. um perhaps sir i guess the same reason i came out of uh three pretty heavy china me of your books i needed needed a palate cleanser <laughs> yeah welcome to my world yeah um so i'm reading robin hobb who is you know i've always seen her name come across as just like you know on the same list as martin and jordan and you know just like people who emerged in the 90s as writing fantasy and were popular and these sort of things and so i'm reading her She's got a, a world, um, a world of the elderlings, I think it's called, which is fucking fantasy. Yeah, man. Oh, God. Well, um, say it again. Just one more time. <laughs> a world of the elderlings. Okay. Yep. Sounds right. <laughs> uh, and her first trilogy, I think it's, I think it's three or four trilogies altogether. She kind of just wrapped it all up a couple years ago. Like, I'm not, I'm done with this area for now. Um, and the first trilogy, uh, 
is called um, the Farseer Trilogy, uh, which is the name of a royal line, as as is to do. Do they and see far? Not really. I mean, um, there might be some hinting of that now, but uh, the first book is called Assassin's Apprentice, and I'm on the second. I'm about three quarters of the second book called Royal Assassin. Uh, it follows uh, a, a a young boy. Big surprise. Um, all from his point of view. It's all single point of view so far, um, which is a little different than what I'm used to. Is the boy an orphan? The boy is an orphan. Yeah! He's right. also a bastard, a royal bastard. Of course he is, but he doesn't know he that at the beginning, right? No, he knows that at the beginning. Oh, yeah. really? All yeah. right, I was going to say, I almost had a bingo there. It's actually kind of like an interesting take because it's much, it's a very like, I think stuff happens later, but I mean, I'm, you know, over halfway through this trilogy and there is very little magic or like fantasy stuff at all. It, it could just simply be a alternate, you know, medieval ish mm-hmm. setting because there's really just, I mean, they have a thing called the skill and the wit, but they're like mild telepathy at best. Um, and there's more to it, I guess, and we'll get there, but, and there's whatever these elder lane things are out there, but there's not like, uh, yeah. So anyway, he is a royalist. He is a bastard and, uh, to one of the, princes you know the king in waiting if you will and then basically uh he gets you know scooped up and they said well either we can kill you because you're a bastard to the throne and not problematic you know progenitor and all that but or you can just we'll turn you into an assassin he's like all right i guess i'll do that so um it's a little more complicated than that but i'm actually like it's pretty interesting it's not it's not very actiony like Hmm. there are brief moments of action but uh I also expected it to sort of follow like the, here we go. He's going to be really good at everything. Not really that good at most things. Huh. Like, I mean, he's competent, like, but he's not the best magic user and he's not the best at this and that. He's like, he can fight kind of, but he's not good at a guy with a sword. Like really just like kind of trying to get by and navigate court politics, which is different than I was expecting mm-hmm. for this very popular series. I mean, there's, you know, winds of stuff coming and things that are ramping up, but Overall, uh, more of just like um, character and, and personal interaction and, and that kind of thing. So uh, it's it's got me so far. Like I said, it's not the, like gripping or exciting in the way that, you know, parts of like a Wheel of Time or a mm-hmm. Sanderson book might be. But it's just like a, a dull, like a low thrumming, like just like, you know, <laughs> this is interesting. And not, it's 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 not like, oh, my God, I read more. But I'm just like when I'm reading it, I'm like, I am engaged and, and interested in what's going on. And there's a lot of mystery to it. Uh, the big threat is that there is these like basically Vikings who are raiding their coasts. And instead of killing people now, they basically are like killing their souls. <sighs> OK, so the people are just like roving bandits, you know, like, you know, they come into your house and they However, however they do it, they don't know how they do it, but like you just lose all empathy and lose all caring about anything, but just immediate satisfaction in any way whatsoever. So, hmm. um, it's just kind of just a different, is not what I was expecting at all. Cause I was expecting just another, like we're going on a quest and blah, blah, blah. Like he's barely <laughs> left the castle in a book hmm. and a half. So yeah. So different than what I was expecting, but interesting. So I was like to see a different take on things. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but I think I might take a break. I'm trying to decide. I don't like to stop between in the middle of a trilogy because I feel like you kind of lose some momentum and inertia. But uh, I do want to read. So Sanderson has brought out a new book called Skyward. It's not a Cosmere book like Mistborn or um, Stormlight, but it is a start of a new series he's doing. And he said it's like a, a classic boy and his dragon story, but it's a girl and her starfighter. Uh, and it's getting good reviews. So I might stop, take a break and read that. 
Interesting. Yeah. So I haven't really seen him do sci-fi yet. So. Well, do you feel like it's going to be um, like sci-fi, sci-fi, or just fantasy in space? I get the feeling it's going to be like sci-fi, sci-fi. I mean, it probably wouldn't be your definition of sci-fi, but like. There's no time dilation in it, you mean? I don't know. I don't know how hard he'll <laughs> go in that direction, but. I, I have a sense that he won't. Probably not. Well, no, he's really into physics and stuff, though, so. um We'll see. I'm curious to see what direction he goes. Like I said, I haven't seen it. I know he's going to do sci-fi more later, although I think that'll be much more fantasy, space fantasy. But yeah, uh, I don't I don't think it's under like a young adult like imprint, but it might be. Mm. Uh, but I read his Reckoner series, which is technically young adult, and I thought that was just fine. So um, I don't know. I actually don't I don't think it is under young adult banner now that I think about it. But we'll see. But uh, yeah, that's my plan. Um, I know you said you're going to have to take a break after uh I have the world to read something something weird, right? Yeah, I'm going to have to. Um, <laughs> even though you sent me an Amazon link with uh, the first three Stormlight books for $9, all all three for 9 bucks, so I had to buy them like a dummy. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to I'm going to hold on on that. I think I think I'm going to read the sequel to a book that I finished called Utopia, but it's spelled E U T O P I A. Oh, right, you um, mentioned that on the show before. Yeah, I, I, I got a couple of chapters in and then I fell off it for some reason, but I finished it. Um, uh, it's really good. Um, it is a, again, turn of the century, um, turn of the century setting, um, but it wraps up the eugenics movement plus um, the kind of utopian commune living that was popular at that time plus Lovecraftian horror. Um, it's, and it was really good. Uh, it's written by David Nickel, um, but it's developed into a series. Um, I think there's at least one other book. So I might do that one next because um, uh, it was weird and, and, and gross as hell. I will also point out uh, this book um, is, yeah, is gross, but also very good. So, you also have to read Secret History at some point. Yeah, I don't have to do anything, man. It's like a hundred pages. Like, come I know, on. but it's I don't I don't. Then you'll be all caught up, and we can talk about everything about Mistborn. It'll be great. I forget a lot of the details already. You know, that's you, why you got to do it sooner rather than later. That's your thing. I don't. <laughs> I have trouble with the names of characters, man. It's because you're listening, not reading, man. Well, it's also because I have ADHD. <laughs> that's true too. But uh, yeah. Um, you will you will like it though. You will you will not be confused. I know I'll enjoy it. It's not that I'm confused, but it's just that like for us to have a conversation about it afterwards. Like if you want to talk about like all the ins and outs of what happened when, I'm like uh, I don't know, man. It's less about that and more about the whole world building as a as a whole. But, all right, well I'll get anyway. there. I'm sure I'll get. There. Yeah, I know you will. I mean, look at you reading all the time. A day I never thought would come. I know. What's become of me? I used I'm to be cool, I I'm think. a bad influence. <laughs> um, Greg, I know that I've probably been keeping you from talking about the topic you want to talk about most. You've probably been playing something, haven't you? <laughs> of course. I've been playing every, the game that everybody's been playing. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. And? It's really good. I mean, it's but it's really weird because Red Dead Redemption, the first game, was really Grand Theft Auto, but in the Wild West. So it was just like... Go around, do crazy stuff, whatever, man. Have a good time. Murder everybody, whatever. 
Red Dead Redemption 2 is much more of a Wild West, beautiful scenery simulator punctuated by Wild West chore simulator. <laughs> um, it has that feeling of you, you're familiar with The Witcher where like you just have to do a lot of shit just to make sure that like your character stays healthy and alive. Yeah. Like in Red Dead Redemption 2, you have to shave regularly or else you grow a beard that makes people not want to talk to you. You have to take baths or else you stink and people don't want to talk to you. Um, Is there a mini game for shaving? No, thank God. Although when you bathe, you have to do button presses to scrub your right arm, scrub your left arm. Um, You have to... um, if your horse gets dirty, you have to stop and brush your horse because when it's dirty, its stamina doesn't regenerate as quickly. <laughs> and, um, boy, you're really selling me in this game, Greg. <laughs> so look, I know that everything I just said sounds like a steaming pile of bullshit. Um, and did I mention that you have to have different outfits for the warm, medium and cold climates in the game? Okay. And change into them appropriately. Well, I'm sure you actually like that part. A little bit. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, you, these are things you have to do and you have to eat and you have to hunt and you, um, and there is no food that's just all around good for you because most food, it's good for your stamina, but bad for your dead eye and, uh, um, or, you know, good for your health, but bad for your stamina. And you can only carry so much stuff and all of these bullshit things that normally I would hate. But there's something about this game where, like, you want to make camp and cook up some food and, like, sleep and wake up and just look at the scenery in the morning. And it's weird how slow and quiet this game is. And I don't mind that it's so slow and quiet. Um, it's amazing. Like it's, 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 I, I have been waking up early in the morning to play this game before work. Oh my gosh. And not because I'm just trying to grind out the next gun because I even like used a glitch to duplicate gold. So I have like $25,000. I'm essentially a millionaire in this game, so I can do whatever I want, but I don't. I just like, I didn't want to deal with the economies. I'm like, whatever, I'm opting out. But I did the same thing in The Witcher because I couldn't stand, you know, being too broke to buy a potion all the time. But um, like, you just wake up in the morning, you're like, I'm just going to go chop some wood, or I'm just going to go, I just going to go ride across the map just to see cool things. Um, Or I want to go explore this new city I found, not because I think that there's, you know, um, a new, you know, faster horse there if I get the right quest. It's just because I want to see what their New Orleans looks like. Um, It's amazing. I, I there's a and the attention to detail in the game is so good that you want to see all these things like there's one uh, mission that ends with me. And I don't even know if other people, like if their mission ended at the same time of day, like, I don't know if it's automatically you, your mission ends with you, like the camera's behind you and you're sitting on the steps of a church at sunset. You're kind of facing the sunset, looking at your character's back. And I noticed that the sun was like realistically kind of showing through his ears. Do you know what I mean? Like uh-huh. you shine a light of your ear, it just like, it's kind of see-through and red. Yeah, it's a little translucent. Like they did that. Wow. And it's just a subtle little detail. Um, and it's just the little things like that that you just you just want to see. You just want to ride around and, you know, um, you know, go look at the sky. It's amazing. I'm I'm thrilled with it. Um, and also uh occasionally when you're in the 
south section of the game, like you'll be riding around at night and there'll be like, there'll be the clan getting into some nonsense. Like I, I happen to pawn a bunch of them in the woods, like doing some kind of clan initiation ceremony and they light the cross on fire, of course. And then they all light themselves on fire because they're all idiots. But then I just started shooting them all. And normally when you just shoot people for no reason in that game, you get a little like negative honor score because it's a crime. But like I started shooting these clan members and my character says, I'm a kill all you idiots. And I was like, all right, Red Dead, you and me are good friends now. <laughs> all right. That's interesting. So is it, yeah. is it like, what's the ge- geography, right? Like, do you get to go like across the United States or? So it's like the first game. It takes place in kind of a fictionalized, compressed version of uh, the American. This one actually takes place. Your your criminal gang is on the run and you're actually headed east. Mm. So this takes place essentially your game starts in the Grizzlies, which is essentially the Rocky Mountains. Um, and then you've got some kind of heartland area and then you've got kind of a southern area and then more of kind of an upper Midwest type area type geographies. So um, it's all fictionalized states, although they refer to real states. It's weird. That's weird. Um, but they, it's all cool. fictional states. And, DC shit right there. Yeah. You know, like you're you're in a state called something like uh, New Hanover or something. But then someone will be like, I hope I never have to go back to Iowa. And you're like, <laughs> all right. Okay, fine. Um, but it's, you know, it's it, it's good that way that you can. It's a 10 minute ride from Louisiana to Boulder. Like That's helpful <laughs> for a game where because. And all your travel, like you have to do in basically real time, like you have to ride, your ass has to ride a horse there. There is no, there's very little fast travel in this game. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I, I kind of understand what you're saying. Cause like, there's a lot of times in Witcher where I'm just like, how far away is it? No, I'll ride there. It's just a pretty game to look at. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you, I started off as like, oh, I'll stumble across something. Now I'm like, no, I did everything. I just like enjoy the scenery. I mean, if it's super far, I'm going to fast travel, but, uh, well, it even has a feature where, you know, uh, you can engage what's called the cinematic camera. Um, and then your horse basically goes, you set a waypoint on the map and your horse basically goes on autopilot. You just control the speed, but it'll follow the roads to your waypoint. But you zoom out into this cinematic camera where it just kind of looks like a cutscene, like the black letterboxing bars come down on the top and bottom of the screen. And it always switches between these very dramatic camera angles that really capture the beautiful scenery as you ride through. So like, even though you have to ride from place to place, like it's kind of nice and relaxing. I can see you sitting back on the couch, you know, enjoying the scenery. It's been like, yeah, ah, man. yeah. It's real nice. Cool. Uh, is it, I assume it's like a big game, like, getting, like hundreds of hours to play, you know, play through or. I have no idea. I, I, I mean, I feel like there's a lot left to this game, but um, it really, it's a game that just wants you to take your time in it and just kind of live in it. That's like, cool. It's not like, but a lot of a mistake that a lot of open world games do is that, they want you to like out of one side of their mouth. They're like, take your time, explore. But then the like the narrative of the game is like all of the demons in hell are coming through a portal tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, but then that's the game's true. Like, hey, why don't you go pick a bunch of mushrooms and, <laughs> and learn how to craft a new stew? Catch some butterflies. This game, like there's very little urgency to the plot. Like you'll get into a mission and there's some urgency. But really, you're just kind of part of this gang that like. You're just a gang of outlaws just trying to live your life. 
Like it's, there's no, at least at this point in the story, there's no real big driving thing that's putting a ticking clock on you. It's just kind of like, hey man, like go hunt and bring some meat back to camp to keep everybody fed. Whatever. Huh. Interesting. I, uh, I get behind that. I can see that being, I can see the appeal on that. I kind of hit the point in Witcher 3, which I've still been, you know, still been kind of working my way through. Um, I think I'm getting close to like some of the end game quest lines and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of finished like all the quests and stuff in Skellige, which is like the Viking, you know, area. Yeah, the Irishy Vikingy place. Yeah, and um, but like I, I've been in all the other areas. I did all the question marks, right? Went to every single one because mm-hmm. that's just what I do. And but man, there's just like a thousand question marks in this Skellige Isle region, and they're like three quarters of them are in the ocean, which is like this, like the most boring, samey, just like, oh, <laughs> there's buried treasure here. Or like just things, you know, in the ocean, like the water combat and man- maneuvering is like not particularly good. And I'm just like, Ugh. and I feel yeah. like I'm like, I, I like log on. I'm like, I guess I should do these because I want to like do them. But at least all the other question marks across the game were like, some of them are samey, but like. It's like each one had its own little flavor to it, right? Where it's like, oh, this is like a little bit different or whatever. Or like, or it's really quick or you get something mm-hmm. for it. But man, getting in that boat and just sailing around and jumping out and going and looting a box is just like, I don't want this game to feel like a chore. And that part of it is starting to, so I might just give up on it. So yeah. we'll see. But cool. Yeah. Um, I, Are you uh, along these lines of like open world, big RPG kind of games? I assume there's like RPG elements in Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, yes. Um. Are you excited for this cyberpunk game? I don't know. I'm torn on it. Like I, I just, I felt like the Witcher was just too much for me. Mm -hmm. And so this is by the same crew. So there's that. And also I just, the cyberpunk aesthetic, I've never been terribly drawn to like in, in the, in general. Um, and this, what I've seen of it, like, it looks like a competent game, but I don't know. It just, I, it's not grabbing me. It just feels like they were like, Hey, what if, (laughs) <laughs> what if it was De- Deus Ex, but we made it? I'm like, eh, all right. Yeah, that's kind of the vibe I got to. I, I, there's something about that I don't like either. Like something about, there's something very different for me running around in an open world in like the wilderness, like mm-hmm. in a Skyrim or a Witcher 3 versus running around in an open world in like a city. sci-fi cities or even just like, even just when I had to go to um whatever the city's called in Witcher 3, the, the big one. I'm like, I don't want to go to a goddamn city. Like, that's where them city folk are. Like, I want to be out here in the country doing what I do. Like, I just don't, because I guess because, like, the city is an open world, or at least it's not as open world as, like, it just feels very, a lot more boxed in, not yeah. just geographically, but, like, you can only go in X amount of buildings and, you know, this sort of thing. So, I mean, if they do a good job of making that feel more open world, but also just, like, getting around feels more sluggish and annoying, which is true i guess but i just just, it it, it feels more artificial because like you say like you can't go everywhere like only so many buildings in a open world game in a city that like you can go into and i understand they can't map every floor of every office building in manhattan but when i'm uh like when i'm playing red dead or the witcher or elder scrolls or what have you that take place in um, uh, you know, a wilderness that feels more real. It's not as fourth wall breaking as a city where I can only go into every fifth building and it's the same gun shop that's on every block, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I guess you're just like, you're seeing so many people and so many things and they only have so many models in the game. Yeah. So it makes it feel a lot more gamey. Exactly. So I'm not sure, like, that's why I like, 
Now, the, the reverse of that is when you're in a like an, a massive online game where cities are fun because, you know, there, there's real people running around all around you, which is like a cool feeling. Yeah. But in a in a single player game, it's it's not as much fun. So I'm out curious. I mean, these guys, what's the company made Witcher? Uh, CD Project CD Project Red. Like they make good games. I mean, like, you know, it, it's undeniable that they make good games. So I'll probably check it out at some point. But uh yeah. Yeah. Um if Red Dead gets ported to PC, maybe I'll pick it up. Um I my friend was trying to convince me to buy a PS4 the other day. I'm just like, I'm just not gonna do that, dude. <laughs> I'm committed. You could, though. I could, though. You could. But I also, I might just, I'm trying to find a way to get my, stream my computer to my TV and either get a controller for certain games or just, like, have a wireless keyboard and mouse or stuff because not all games are conducive for that, but I, I could play The Witcher with a controller on my couch and be pretty comfortable with that. I don't want a PS4, Greg. Yes, you PC do. Master you want a computer race. you can plug into your TV and play the Witcher on? That's called a PlayStation. <laughs> no. I have to buy all these games that are super expensive. Ugh, no, 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 thank you. I bought the Witcher for like $4. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I was thinking about buying a Switch, but probably going to boot off my friends. No, don't do that. Do you like me some Smash Brothers? Ugh, get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. New one looks so good, though. Uh, no, it doesn't. It looks like Smash. Get out of here. By the way, these games was, are all dumb games for dumb dumbs. <laughs> we were at um, a friend's house a couple weekends ago and we were playing like just like some casual games on their Wii U, I guess, which that's what came after Wii, but before Switch, right? Yes. Okay. I'm like not up on consoles. Um, we were playing some like it was just like a some sort of one of those just like CDs that has, you know, eight casual games on it. And one of the games was just literally just tag. Or basically, like, you know, three three of the people were trying to catch the other person. Little, just, like, stupid little models in some vaguely Nintendo style. And you know what? It was so fucking fun. Ah, you nerd. <laughs> we just played for, like, three hours. Like, why is this, like, the most simple concept so interesting? I mean, like, I guess mechanically it was interesting because one person was using the Wii U and they had, like, a map and they could see the person who was, like, running from the other people. So it's kind of had that private three people are chasing you down kind of thing. But I don't know. I just remind me that like sometimes simple things are just really fun. Yeah. Just like chopping wood, right? Yeah. Chopping wood in your wild west chores. It's $60 chores. Simulator. <laughs> I always remember that, uh, that Simpsons episode with the virtual lawn work, which was way ahead of its time because it's literally games that are that. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what red dead is. <laughs> virtual lawn work. So, Greg, is there anything else that you're that you're into right now? I mean, I could have. I I I feel like I could keep going forever, but at some point, I have to. I have to go to my non-simulated real-world chores. Mm. Um, so I will close by saying this: um, I cannot recommend the movie Mandy highly enough. That's one with Nick Cage. Yes. Okay. Um, it is transcendent. I say that unironically. Was this a movie you saw in theaters? No, I, uh, I, I rented this one on the, uh, on the iTunes. Oh, okay. Um, it is, I mean, watch the trailer cause that'll give you a sense of what you're getting into, but who oh boy, it is so good in so many ways. Um, and if you like heavy metal of the, uh, of the spooky doomy variety and you like, um, uh, sinister eighties nostalgia, like, what if Lisa Frank was a Satanist? Then, <laughs> oh man, it's so good. Go watch Mandy, is all I can tell anyone in the world who likes things that are cool. 
I've heard good things. Uh, I will find out a, a final way to, to acquire this. And There's watch nothing this. wrong with watching Mandy. Um, this is probably a me movie, not a Shay and me movie, right? Um, I don't think Shay would enjoy this movie, but you can show <laughs> her the trailer and she can make her own. Um, she can make her own determination. Did Karen enjoy this movie? I did not even suggest it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Cool. Um. Yeah. All right. Well, it was good to catch up a little bit. Yes, sir. Um, I'm going to continue persuading you to buy a PS4. I don't think I should do that. You know, Black Friday's coming up. Unless you're planning to like play games with me all the time over the interwebs. Um, which I know is your favorite thing to do is to play with other people online. Yeah, it's not though. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. All right. Talk to you soon. Catch you later.